think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. All right, you can tell by the music it is time to get your brains in gear and put your thinking caps on. We are trying, desperately so, to think Christianly in this world. So we're doing that by going through Scripture, beginning to end, pillar to post, seeing how who God is and how he deals with us influences the way we should view and understand the world. That's how you form a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview. So if you haven't listened to the previous episode, stop! Go back and listen. They will, in fact, do you good. Or you can start here, be completely confused about what I'm talking about, and then move straight on. Now, as we have continued on our march, (coughs) excuse me, when last we left our intrepid people to be delivered, God had led them out of Egypt. He had taken down Egypt, removed their power, removed their authority, struck at everything the Egyptians would hold dear to worship from the natural elements to the sky above, the ground below, to the very Pharaoh who sits upon their throne. All of them struck down at the feet of Yahweh. He is God. They are not. And they will have to deal with that reality moving forward. Now, because sinful people do sinful things, you may be asking yourself, why didn't God just wipe out Pharaoh earlier? I mean, why go after the firstborn? Why not just take Pharaoh to task straight away by himself, wiped out, nothing to see here, nothing to worry about, nothing to deal with? Remember, when we're talking about God preserving, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That means that God is preserving even the sinful uh, the sinful rebel in their sin for his purposes. And an example of that can be seen here in Exodus 14. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before, before, before if I could read, before Pi Haheroth, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp at the, in front of Baal Zephon, opposite it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the sons of Israel, will say of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. And they did so. So when Pharaoh's told, the people are fled and they're wandering around. He had a change of heart and he said, what is this we have done that we have let the Israelites go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chase after them with all the horses, blah, 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 You can figure. And I'm not saying that because it's unimportant. I'm just saying that because you don't want to sit here and have me read the Bible to you. You can read. You're, you're smart people. And if you're not, find somebody to fill in the blah, blah, blah parts because it doesn't do me any good to try to read to you all 66 books of the Bible as we try to do this. <clears throat> now, what I love is, remember Israel leaves in martial array. That means they leave prepared for war. <sighs> Gotta love these people. 
As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they, then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What's Israel forgetting right here? Other than every single thing that God has done for them up until this point. What they're forgetting is who's creator and sustainer? God is. They are dependent people, but they are not dependent people dependent upon the Egyptians. They are dependent people dependent upon God who is in heaven. They are dependent upon Yahweh for their sustenance, not Egypt. That's the major breakdown here. They're looking for their hope, their safety, and their security in this world rather than the world that God is building and blessing. They have forgotten his faithfulness. They have forgotten his salvific work. They have forgotten that he will accomplish what he has promised, and they are living for the here, for the now. It's the same argument that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15, that they are not living for God's kingdom. And this is the argument Paul makes about Jesus, that if the dead are, if Christ isn't raised, then the dead aren't raised. And if the dead aren't raised, then we are of all men most miserable because we have hoped for something beyond this life. Christian, remember this as you think through. We're not living for the things of this world. We're not living for the hopes, dreams, and aspirations of this world. We're living for the hopes, dreams, and aspirations of the fulfilled world that God has promised. And because he is the one who creates, and he is the one who is precise in his promises, and he is the one who is long-suffering, all of which are part of our foundations, we can trust that he will accomplish his purposes and that he will strengthen and sanctify us for the difficult road that lies ahead. So Moses said to the people, don't fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. There's operating on your biblical foundations. God will fight. God will be faithful. God who will save us is also the God who will judge them. He will preserve us. He will wipe them out. He will accomplish these things. These are all parts of our foundations working together so that when Moses is confronted with what seems like an impossibility, he instead of despairing is fortified. That's part of that sanctification, the bearing up that James 1, 2 through 4 talks about. That's a fruit of your sanctification. So the Lord said to Moses, I love this, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. And as for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. But as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, and I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. The God's like, I've already told you what we're doing here. What are you whining about? We've got work to do, and that work will be accomplished. This is how this is going to be. Now, another little note that you should get here. 
The angel of God who had gone before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. So the angel of the Lord here is walking in the midst. Remember, the angel of the Lord is a Christophany. It is a theophany, but a specifically Christophany. So you could say a purely theophany. A pure theophany would be just an appearance of God in some shape, form, or fashion. So the Holy Spirit being visible as it alights upon Jesus at the baptism. That's a theophany. The burning bush is more of a theophany. You see the flame and you see the angel of the Lord standing in the midst of the flame. So God is represented more as a flame. Um, when God makes a covenant with Abraham and he appears as a, a flaming torch in a smoking oven, or a, or a flaming oven would smoke out, go read Genesis 15, it'll do you good. Those are theophanies. That's an appearance of God. A Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Typically in the Old Testament, that is designated as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord has the power of God. It speaks with the authority of God. It speaks on behalf of God. It represents him in a way that none of the other angels that show up represent him, in a way that no other people represent God. So just condition yourself. When you see angel of the Lord, think Jesus. And this is what's going on. So as the Israelites are being led out, it's not just the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. It's Christ delivering this people and leading them out. Again, God being precise in his deliverance here. So, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord swept back the sea by a strong wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. The waters are divided, and the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This eliminates the tsunami theory. You know, like before the tsunami comes in, the water is driven, uh, is pulled back from the, from the shore. The Israelites don't get this. The west wind blows right into their faces and carves a channel out of the, uh, out of the sea. I believe it's the uh, Gulf of Arabah there, the north northwestern corner of the sea there. So this is carved out, and the water is just piled up. So as the wind does its work, the land is dried up, the water is piled, and then God just holds it there. That would be cool. So this happens. They go through. The Egyptians follow. You know the story. The Egyptians get mogged, bogged down in the, in the ground, which is hysterical because the Israelites walk through on dry land with no problems. The the Egyptians go in there, and suddenly the chariots don't turn, and they can't get out. Why? God's precise. And he has preserved Pharaoh and his armies up until this point, and at this point his preservation will last no longer. Because at this point he will now act as judge. And so Moses gets the other side, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. The Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Just realize, when we talk about God as judge, and this is something that will be useful for us moving forward in life, this was swift. I mean, you, move, you, you hold your staff over the water, the waters come back, and it, it, like that, the Egyptian army's gone. There's no thinking, there's no processing, they're just done immediately. I doubt there was a whole lot of chatter in that moment for the Israelites. Cheer, yes, but then as bodies and chariots and horses begin to get washed up on the shore, there's a sobriety that settles in, and it should settle in. And this is, again, why remembering what God has done for us 
helps us live in this world. He is our Savior, yes, as he parts the sea for the Israelites and paves the ground below their feet so that they pass through easily. So too for us in Christ we receive forgiveness of sins. We have a righteousness imparted to us, and we walk by the power of his Spirit in holiness, yes. And he lights our paths, and he makes our way straight, and he preserves us to the end. By the same token, he's going to judge them if they do not repent and they do not turn to Christ. And that should be something that sobers our attitude towards the rest of the world, that changes how we see them. They don't deserve our contempt and our scorn and our ridicule. They deserve our mercy, our grace, and our proclamation. Because literally, it's like when you were a kid, like, I know something you don't know. I know something you don't know. We literally do know something they don't know. And it is the future judgment that they await. And even though they know it, they have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and lied to themselves. Christian, understanding who God is and how he deals in this world will change your heart and mind and how you understand and deal in this world. So, Exodus 15 comes in. You get a praise of God. Why? Because he's acted as a warrior this day. He has accomplished for Israel what they could not. He has undone the evil that afflicted the Israelites in a worldly perspective. What is being pictured here is God undoing the evil that is afflicting all of his people which is ultimately sin. And just as Israel can't conquer Egypt and must be delivered Christian, so too can you not conquer sin and are in need of deliverance. Remember, we're dependent beings, trusting on the salvation of God, his faithfulness to persevere and accomplish what we cannot. So, in the midst of that, that faithfulness of God. Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And they came to Marah, and they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Marah, Marah, depending on how you look at it, you'll see this again in Ruth, um, literally means bitter. So the name of the place is given because they can't drink the water. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, by the way, that's going to be a recurring theme. What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. That doesn't even make sense. That doesn't make a bit of sense. Who heals the waters? God heals the water. Does he use means? Yes, he uses means to demonstrate that what he has done is accomplished, just like he does in the plagues. God could have sent the gnats without the dust. He could have caused the darkness without Moses' staff. He could have done all of these things. He uses means as a demonstration of his work through his people. And there he made a statute and a regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on which I have put the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. See, that's the reason you use the means. What protected, what kept the lights on in Goshen when Egypt went dark? God. What kept their cattle alive when the, when the livestock are struck? God does. What what's parts the sea and keeps the, the ground bedrock until the Egyptians go in, and then it's mud? God does. And this is the lesson that's being taught, to be dependent in trust in him. And you see this lesson repeated again. Chapter 16. So they leave Elim and all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after the departure from the land of Egypt. And they're grumbling. Why? Because, well, they're hungry. 
Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. When we sat by pots of meat, we ate bread to the full, and you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They grumble. It's not us that's grumbling. It's our stomachs. We're hangry, and we're not us when we're hungry, and we don't have Snickers yet. We won't invent that for a few thousand more years. Well, you know the response. The manna from heaven comes. God literally says, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? He also brings the quail into the camp. And again, the problem is you get a double portion of the manna on Friday. And what do the Israelites do? Well, they forsake it, and they go out on Saturday morning to pick or to gather. I don't know how you really describe that. Proving what? That they're not listening, that they're not paying attention, that they're not walking faithfully. How does this relate? God's faithful. God is precise and long-suffering, not us. God is. We think we're long-suffering in this world. We have no idea. We get impatient when the internet doesn't load in a few seconds. We get impatient when people can't answer questions in a second, in .2 seconds or whatever. God unfolds his work in humanity and in history over millennia. Millennia. He is patient and he is long-suffering with his people in a way that we cannot comprehend. Again, this should have bearing for us. God waits, Galatians 4, until the fullness of time, till the timing is right and his purposes and plans are fulfilled. Christian, we have to do the same thing. We have to be less insistent on our accomplishment and more dependent upon his timing and accomplishment, which is again why I keep saying over and over, whether it's Sunday morning or whether it's on podcast or whatever, we have to be willing to operate on his timetable and continue to be faithful no matter what because that's the temptation that we're hit with the temptation is for something other than faithfulness to be our guiding well what's the word i'm looking for to be our guiding foundation really for something other than faithfulness to be the goal of which we work towards we want to get numbers we want to get accomplishments no we want to be faithful we want to walk look Be prepared to sign up to be Jeremiah, okay? That's what I'm telling you right now. Be prepared to sign up to be Jeremiah. Faithfully proclaiming, faithfully serving, faithfully worshiping, and seeing almost no fruit from it. Not because there's not a possibility of fruit, just because God hasn't provided it. And when the time is right, he will. And until he does, waiting. Waiting upon God, Walking faithfully, knowing that when the time is right, he will accomplish his purposes. Case in point, Exodus 17, in case you haven't picked up on the redemption language that's going on here as I smack my microphone, sorry. All the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, "Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord, why do you test the Lord?" The people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, "Why now have you brought us from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst?" 
So Moses cried to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they'll stone me. Notice this. The Lord said, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Trial time. You're setting up a symbol of authority, the staff. You're setting up the judges of Israel, the elders. You're passing before the people, so they're assembled as witnesses. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. So in other words, the angel of the Lord here, God, the one who is leading the congregation, will stand upon the rock. The rock will be struck, and water is going to come out of the rock? Who's going to make water come out of the rock? God is. Are we are we punishing the rock? Yes. Yes, we are. Why? Who is the rock? Christ is the rock. God in flesh is the rock. By striking the rock, by striking the symbol of the provision, God is taking upon himself the stripe, Isaiah 53, that is due to the Israelites for their grumbling and lack of faith. God is bearing the penalty and then providing for them the sustenance that they require that they may live. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That's a wicked and sinful people. <clears throat> Excuse me. When you want to talk about the patience of God, there's an example of it. They are walking in sin rather than walking in faithfulness. And they're going to proclaim that they're walking in faithfulness. They're not. And yet, what do you see? You see a patient, loving, graceful God, not crushing them because he has redeemed them as his people. Christian, this should have some impact on you when you deal with fellow brothers who are in sin and yourself when you're in sin. It's really easy to find somebody in sin and be like, I cannot believe you. What is wrong with you? I don't know. Carol feels like the appropriate name right there, but I don't know. If your name is Carol, I'm sorry if you're upset. But what should be reminded? Well, you sinned. Of course you did. Wait for it. You're a sinner. And sinners sin. Who would have thunk that one, right? So instead of being so quick to condemn, we should be quick to offer grace and support and encouragement because that's what we do. This is what Galatians tells you. Galatians 6, where we're bearing one another's burdens. What James 5 talks about, where you're redeeming and rescuing one who's lost in sin and covering for sins and saving from the brink, basically. In other words, we're supposed to be gracious with one another because we recognize that it is God who is accomplishing and God who is sanctifying and not us. That we are participating, yes, but we are the, the most passive of participants most of the time. And that by his strengthening, we stand firm. And by his mercy, we overcome. So I don't need to condemn you. I need to point you in godliness. I need to encourage you to walk rightly. And then when you don't, I can then say, well, you're now rejecting God, which means you need to hear what? You need to hear the gospel. You need to recognize that this sin is a mark. This sin is mastering you. <coughs> Excuse me. You are in league with the forces of evil in this world. You are in league with the schemes of the devil, and you need to repent and turn. 
<coughs> and you can because there is a Christ who has taken reproach upon himself in your name. There is a Christ who offers you his righteousness to your account so that you may walk newly in God and where you have previously fallen, you may now stand tall. That's what we need to proclaim. Instead, we backbite, we gossip, we argue, and we look down our noses at people forgetting that that's why we stand and that's why we are what we are. And just to prove his perseverance and his love for his people, then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So, and here's, here you go. Moses and, uh, Joshua goes to battle. Moses, Aaron, and Hur go up the, bat, up the mountain, and Moses does what? Hold your arms up, and, and God wins the battle. Put your arms down, God loses the battle. Not because Moses' arms are special, because God is using a symbol here to teach the Israelites something. And Moses can't do it. The flesh is weak. He is unable. So they literally prop up and hold his arms outstretched so that he can keep his arms up and her and air and stabilize them. So yes, Moses sits there at the shape of a cross and God redeems his people and God conquers their enemy. Christian, I shouldn't have to point you to what the illusions are here and what the imagery is pointing to. It's obvious. Don't miss it. It's God's work, God's power, God's sacrifice that conquers our enemies, not ours. We're called to walk in that sacrifice, but know that your sacrifice is not what accomplishes. God is the one who accomplishes, and it's being borne out and proven here in what goes on here with Israel, and it is the same thing that's going on even today, is that when we think about things other than how we view God, we are missing something because we're elevating ourselves into the idolatrous place, and we're also forgetting that God is consistent in his nature, and his actions flow from his nature. That's why you have verses that talk about how God cannot lie and cannot deny himself and cannot do what is contrary. Because to do what is contrary is to go against the character that he is, to be something that is less than, to be dependent upon something else. And God is not those things. Therefore, he will consistently function and deal with his people according to who he is, and that is borne out in his work. We can know who he is because we can see how he works, and because that work never wavers and never changes, we can come up with these firm definitions as much as we can understand of how God is in his character and nature, and then we can trust that. And then as we live our lives seeking to be more Christ-like because of the work that he has done for us, we then assimilate those understandings into who we are and how we deal with the world. If you don't, you're the random Israelite in the wilderness grumbling and complaining all the time. If you do, you're Moses making these declarations. Man, be quiet. God will accomplish. Be faithful. Walk forward because God will will complete his work. So, questions, comments, complaints? Oh, wait a minute. So what have we learned here today, children? God will accomplish his salvation. God will accomplish our sanctification. God will be himself in all circumstances. Now, questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. You can go to the website. You know the jazz. Um, send us the information you want us to look at. Again, planning on being back here, hopefully getting ready to start a couple of weeks here when Lou gets in on how we look at 
humanities relations to ecclesiology. I'm getting ready to go to what may end up being my last Southern Baptist Convention next month, and the big issue is not just the the work of Scripture, which is always an issue, but the sufficiency of Scripture leading to ecclesiology and how we understand the church. So as I'm working through some of the issues we're going through and figuring out how we're going to deal with them, I think it'd be helpful and useful because these things are going to come for all of us at some point and in some shape, form, or fashion. So I think it'd be good that we can go through some of those things. So as we get to do all that, we can sit down and look at how ecclesiology helps to function and make sense of this as we go. So think biblically, Christian. Stop. Slow down. Evaluate what's going on, but evaluate why it's going on in that way. And then think, how can you respond in a manner that is consistent with yourself being a child of God, operating in His nature and attributes? So, until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.